Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Bangkok, as Thailand's largest and most economically important city, attracts migrants from all over the country. Drawn to its economic opportunities, migrants eke a living, working working in informal jobs with few protections, yet build a community among their fellow migrants and workers. The King of Bangkok, written by Claudio Sopranzetti, illustrated by Sara Fabri, and translated from its original Italian by Chiara Natalucci, tells the story of one such migrant, Nock, who lives through economic upheaval, protest movements, and military crackdowns in a story based on years of research. Claudio and Sara join me today to talk about the King of Bangkok. Claudio Sopranzetti is a professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the Central European University. He is the author of Owners of the Map, winner of the 2019 Margaret Mead Award. Sara Fabri is an illustrator and editorial designer currently working as art director for Linus, an Italian comics magazine. Today, the three of us will talk about Nock's story and what it tells us about Thailand, Bangkok, and the country's urban-rural divide. We'll also talk about the process of making the book itself, a graphic novel based on a decade of anthropological research. So, Claudio and Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today on the Asian Review of Books podcast. Perhaps let's start with a question about the main character, Nock. I know this is a book based on anthropological research, so my first question is, is Nock a real person, or is he a composite of various people that you met during your research? First of all, thank you very much for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, um, Nock is in fact a composite character, and um, we made this decision very early on in the process for a couple of different reasons. One, because we wanted to tell the story, or a story which in many ways is a it's an average story. It's an everyday story of migration from the provinces to um, to the city. And it's a story of political awakening and the kind of story of a, of a migrant class uh, in Thailand over the last 30, 40 years. Um, but in order to tell this story in Thailand, um, you will run the risk of putting the people um, that you narrate uh, at risk, at legal risk. So Thailand is a country that has a law called the Last Majesty Law that uh, attacks and arrests everybody who criticizes the monarchy or say anything negative against the monarchy. And because part of the story we told was a story of political awakening also in relation with the monarchy, we didn't want any of the character to be recognizable. So we took four or five people that I had worked with and I've done research and I spent time with over the course of the 10 years. We kind of meshed them. Um, into a character, which is the knock that um, the book speaks about. So what time period does your book cover? And what are some of the major political events that happened during the span of Nock's story? Yeah, so, I mean, Nock's story really starts at the beginning of the 80s. 
Um, and we chose the beginning of the 80s because it's a period in which you have this massive uh, growth of Bangkok. The Bangkok that you were referring to at the beginning is what uh, scholars call a primate city. Uh, it's a city that is 40 times as big as the second biggest city in the in the country. So imagine that it's a city that has basically a fifth of the population or a sixth of the population of the entire country. And that that macro development, that kind of gigantic growth of the city started in the 80s. So we, we started the story there and we arrived to uh, the mid-2010s. And obviously, over the course of these 50 years, um, there are many, many, many different historical, important historical changes. But what we really want to tell is, is the steps from a newcomer to the city arriving and experiencing this kind of marvel um, of a giant metropolis, all the way to someone who gets used to the place or in the 90s uh, with the massive economic growth of the country, experienced the kind of shorter stick of that of the economic development, then goes through the 1997 economic crisis that hit Thailand harder than many other places uh, in East Asia, uh, and so it becomes a very important moment for them. And then from the 2000s, they kind of start to becoming um, active political um, participator and active um, political thinkers and, and activists. And so the story that we tell in the latter part is really a story of how. Uh, again, these migrants uh, from the provinces become central to the big history of Thailand. Ultimately, what we wanted to do in the book was tell about this relationship and the changing relationship between the big history, the big the history of the economic crisis, of the big political movement, of the big changes, and the everyday history of many of the people that you meet in the streets of Bangkok every day. So what drives men like Nock to move to Bangkok in the first place? And kind of what are the sorts of jobs or careers they fall into once they arrive? Yeah, I think, I mean, again, this is part of what we wanted to play with the, mm. with the book. We have a book that is called The, Kill, the King of Bangkok, uh, but in fact talks about somebody who is anything but a king, somebody who is a very ordinary man. And I think, as always, when we talk about migration in Thailand or in other places, is this guy, we're talking about a mix, a mix between economic reasons and the push and pull of the, the economic change that we talk about in the 80s. And on the other side, desire, um, uh, a dream and a, and a desire and an aspiration of being part of a city, of being part of the changes that were happening um, in Thailand at the time. So I think what drives them in some ways is a push out of the countryside from economic reform that is making Bangkok bigger and bigger and bigger and more central and more central and more central while making the countryside more far away and more underdeveloped in a way as Bangkok developed. So there's kind of this push from one side. And on another is um, um, it's an attraction, right? It wanted to be part of something bigger, which is something that we narrate in this story. Now, what they end up doing, it's often very um, everyday, low-level type of informal labor. And so part of what the story also tells is this kind of arriving into a city through personal networks, getting someone who helps you find the job, and then the myriad of jobs that they go through as they try to establish themselves, not anymore just as rural migrant, but also as urban citizen. And so part of the, the, the story that we tell, at least in the first part of the book, is how, the, how does one become uh, a citizen of Bangkok? 
uh, through these laborers, through their contact, through their experiences, through learning to be in the city. I'd like to bring in Sarah for this next question, um, because in, in your and one of your answers just now, you talked about kind of the the majesty of Bangkok, kind of the the vibrancy of the city, and I want to kind of because one of the things about King of Bangkok is that it's a graphic novel. There's um, some really wonderful illustrations throughout the book, and I wanted to bring in Sarah and ask kind of what um, what were like what were some of your influences, some of what you were hoping to achieve in illustrating. Knox story and illustrating, um, I guess, illustrating the environment of Bangkok and the other environments in Thailand uh, in the book. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Really great to be here. And second, when, when Claudio and Chiara contacted me to collaborate on this book, I knew very little about Thailand. I had never been there, and the few information I had painted the country as a peaceful tourist paradise. And so um, when I started uh, building a visual archive based on material we could find in Italy and Claudio owns archives, um, I, I started to understand that Thailand was um, biggest than my imagination. And the more I learned about this, is. Claudio's work, the more I understood how superficial my idea of Thai culture was. So when I when we 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 had a residency in Thailand and when we were there, I threw away all my previous work because I started to look at Bangkok. Thailandese people and with a, a really new uh, site. <laughs> I mean, um, it took a while to realize uh, how limited my own gaze was. So, um, I mean, when um, when you write, uh, when you sorry, when you um, drawing a non-fictional story. Uh, that involves a lot of research, uh, not least about iconographic material, so background, uh, geographical correspondences and environment are significant to the truthfulness of the story. So I needed to fill in all my gaps. I needed to um, try to transform uh, um, details or uh, geographical area in with my 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 own uh, proper style so uh most of the work for the first chapter the first year was to find my own proper voice and working with um because sorry uh, a central part of my work was to be faithful uh, in the representation of the details or or cities, buildings, uh, and streets, uh, um, drawing and coloring style in uh, our graphic novel is all, but sorry, drawing and coloring style in our graphic novel is also extremely personal. So the, the final product is a revision that started from the observation of reality and this extensive historical documentation. But then I melted everything with my, my own sensibility and shaped by the aim of our story. So um, I think our personal lens shaped our 
authorial sensibility with the intent of overcoming the role of documentary storytelling. And I'd like to... I'd like to kind of re- return to that idea of how you balance the um, the work of illustrating with the need to kind of stay true to the ethnographic details. But I'd like to return to that near the end of our conversation. I'd like to now get back to to Nock and Nock's story. That's kind of charting his path through the King of Bangkok. Um, you know, after he arrives in Bangkok, he returns back to his village uh, where he suffers an accident, um, where he's cared for by by his father, and then to kind of pay his father back for taking care of him, Nock decides to become a to become a monk, which everyone treats as a very normal thing to do. Like it's not it's not weird. No one says it's strange that you're going to become a monk. Everyone's like, oh yeah, of course. Like of course you would do that. I wonder if you might kind of just talk a little bit more about kind of what the what role does do monks and does monkhood play in the life of an ordinary Thai man? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I mean this is just to latch this onto what Sarah was saying, I think part of the the challenge that we had, both from a graphic point of view and from a narrative and and dialogic and 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 discursive point of view in the book, was to balance a sense of distance as we imagine a, a foreign audience to to this graphic novel, with some of the as- the aspects that are very normal and very everyday life in Thailand, which might sound extremely odd. And this was both something that we had to do with the story itself, with some of the concept, with certain sensibility um, on one side, and on the other one with images, as, as Sarah was saying, with iconography, with images that are everyday views in Thailand and might feel very extraneating for um, for a uh, foreign eyes. So the, the, the story of monkhood was very central to this. Why? Because in, in Thailand and especially in rural Thailand, it's extremely normal, if not expected, actually up until a few years ago when things are changing for a young man to, uh, become a monk for a few months. Now, when we, when sometimes as foreigner, we think about monks as priests, or as a Western, we think about monks as priests, but the comparison is a very bad ones, because normally priesthood is something that you enter for life. While monkhood in the Thai environment and in a lot of the Southeast Asian environment, it's something that you can enter also for a very short time. And for, for, for men, especially in the countryside, but not only, it's traditionally understood as two things. One, as a coming of age, a kind of ritual is kind of, you know, what, uh, what in Great Britain might be the year abroad or the 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 year after high school before you start university. So it's a it's this kind of rite of passage to the point that in time sometimes you say that a man is riped after he become a monk. Um, so there's this sense of like a, an actual rite of passage, and on the other side is conceived as a sort of um, way of honoring your parents. So it's a way to obtain a good karma for your parents' future lives. And so it's very common, in fact, for people who feel extremely grateful for the, for uh, for some reason to their parents to do this for a few months. And that's exactly what Nock does. Now, what we wanted to tell there is precisely both to, to fight this sense of extraneation by telling a very normalized story of this process, but also to give you a sense of what kind of sensibility those months in a in a in a monastery create for men who go through that experience. So a lot of the interview I did 
uh, with people, they brought up these months that they've spent in, in, in monkhood as a way to understand um, the meaning of life in a kind of abstract sense, impermanence, a sense of accepting what life brings to you. So it was also for us a, nar- a narrative device to introduce um, a sort of sensibility that might feel very far away and to show that this is nothing exotic. It's a very everyday life in which people experience life around them uh, in, in the historical moment and in this specific context, which I think is really the challenge of our book, as I was saying, both in writing and in, in graphic form. Yeah. And Sarah, if you want to add. Yeah, I mean, uh, another example is um, when you need to represent the different use of domestic space uh, or, uh, for example, the kitchen is so crucial in Europe for the development development of the family relationship is not as important in Thailand as the outdoor patio. So you need to uh, show where the family and the neighborhood build the relationship dynamics, uh, but also uh, the, the object contained in them, like mats uh, instead of chair, bug nets, rice makers. Mm, when you draw that, uh, mm, you you can give uh, the significant non-verbal insight into into um, social status or um, the friends relationship or geographical custom and tradition. Um, maybe um, inside which may be lost to the un- unaware reader, but which contribute in generating a certain atmosphere. So uh, we needed to um, add that atmosphere. We needed to research for create this atmosphere in the graphic novel. Speaking of a of a change in, in atmosphere, um, you know, obviously after his time in the village, Nock then travels to um, a resort island to work as a migrant construction worker. Um, And that's a part of the story that brings in a lot of different elements. It brings in um, the rise of tourism, you know, a lot more foreigners in Thailand. It brings up the Asian financial crisis, which, um, which severely impacts Nock's ability to work. Uh, It brings in, um, it brings in the problem of drugs because Nock gets involved with drugs during his time working as a migrant worker. And I wonder if you might kind of maybe talk about kind of what were the sorts of things you want to present in this particular part of Nock's story? What were some of the important points about being in Thailand during that time that was important to kind of work into Nock's story? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think, again, referring back to what Sarah was saying, like, Thailand is a very interesting place, I think, to to try to um, to narrate this political story and this historical trajectory that we want to narrate, because it's so much tied in collective imaginary. Uh, I mean, foreign collective imaginary with tourism, with a certain type of experience of being on an island, and and so we wanted to talk about a few things there. We wanted to talk first of all about the other side of that tourism, meaning who are the, me- the men and women that make those experiences possible, that physically construct those houses, that physically man uh, the bars and the restaurants. And so we wanted to, first of all, focus on this aspect that is often kind of overlooked, but that we wanted to put um, to put at the core. So to re- tourists are neither a good or a bad presence, 
but they are a source of money for our for our informants and for the people that we narrate. So we kind of decided to to take this other entry point into tourism. But also, we wanted to talk about this dynamic of a massive development that does bring wealth, like Nock family becomes wealthier, they have kids, they are able to construct a house in the countryside, but at the same time start eroding somewhere else. And we wanted to talk about that duality. So in some sense, the drugs problem there, which is very, was very common among construction workers. I mean, a lot of the booming construction in the 90s in Thailand is fueled by international investment on one side and is fueled on by methamphetamine and, and people working 12, 13, 14, 15 hours a day uh, because of the drugs and thanks to the drugs. That was very often put in the water that these construction workers just drank while they were working. So we wanted to tell those two stories in some ways, the stories of, of a development that does bring something, but also it does so by consuming these bodies and consuming these people who are um, who are doing the work behind it. And so for us was, was that type of, of project that we wanted to do and that narrative. And just to give you a sense of how we went about doing the research for it, we spent, as Sarah was saying, a long time in Thailand, uh, I had spent a very long time, and then we went for a uh, for a few months. And one of the things we were doing was location scouting, the same way you would do for a movie. We would go to play to the places that we wanted to narrate, find archival images, uh, historical images, get Sarah to take uh, drawings and, and sketches of these places, and then think about what are the feeling we want to pass of this moment. And so, specifically for this moment of the '90s and the and the tourism. We talked with Sarah about color, which became a very important part of thinking through it. So I don't know if Sarah, you wanna add something of how um, yeah, the narrative and colors went end to end. Yeah, because in this graphic novel, colors are not descriptive or real. They they have a narrative and psychological function. So I choose them based on my first impression of Thailand and. If, if I think about those places now, I can see them exactly with this, these colors. But at, this, at the same time, um, <clears throat> but for example, uh, the, um, the island, the island was, uh, um, we needed to talk about exploitation of the labor. The, yes, the labor, we need to talk about uh, um, drugs and party, house music party. There was a big part of uh, um, the tourism in that period. So I choose uh, um, lysergic and cold color in contrast with the heavily nature of the island. And, uh, but I, I, need, I, I needed to... Um, uh, Push. I needed to um, maxima- maximize um, this feeling of, uh, uh, you know, um, reality that drugs uh, brings. So, um, I, I mean, I mean, I, I choose uh, really um, because you know, in in Thailand. Uh, uh, there, um, there are um, existing color codes. Uh, um, like the symbolic relationship with um, bright color and social power or uh, um, in Thailand specific color like yellow and pink are associated to the, the monarchy. So I try to 
um, uh, find um, um, uh, color code uh, that fits uh, uh, culturally and uh, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm just a little <laughs> lost here. Um, my research on color and the representation was particularly central to represent um, also uh, one specific thing, uh, the blindness of our character. Um, yes, la- the, I adopt a solution um, and um, we try, um, we needed to make visible to the reader how a blind man perceives reality. So um, blindness is the core of the book. So uh, we need we needed to uh, highlight this metaphor of blindness because this is pervades the, the books and connected the character's story with the larger history of Thailand. So I tried different solution before reaching the right one, but everything was clear when I decided to took away all the color from the pages and use it, use it the color to represent the source of noise uh, through geometrical colorful shapes. Uh, this is became the, the main visual symbol through whole the story. Um, so the color was really, really uh, important to develop all the chapters. I have one more question about the book's story um, and Nock's story. The book then ends with a discussion of, um, you can call it kind of maybe Nock's political awakening. I think through most of the book, Nock is a very... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use the word traditional, um, but then with uh, but then with the rise of toxin, it seems like that leads to some kind of to a political awakening amongst Nock and his contemporaries. Uh, but then, of course, there's um, a later crackdown on the protest movement um, from the military, and so I guess what was it about that time that led people like Nock to suddenly be more political and be more politically aware? And then why did that lead to resistance um, from, you could call it the Thai establishment or, or, or some elements of, of, of the Thai establishment? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, this is the real, I mean, in many ways, is the very core of the story we want to tell. Uh, and also, I mean, for me personally, it's, it's, it's what my research is about. It's what I've been working on for the last 15 years. So um, it, it was... It's kind of where I wanted to get to. And I think you are completely right. I mean, Nock is at the beginning a fairly traditional person, as many people are. Um, and by the end, it's it's changed. Uh, and his, his relationship with the state, his relation with politics, his relationship um, with all these different kind of social structure have been changed. So I think, I mean, that awakening, as you were referring to, came from a number of different places. I mean, first of all, we were talking about in the last questions about the economic crisis and the economic crisis and the aftermath of it had a big role in it. This kind of sense, at least as a, as perceiving a sort of disenchantment, right? So what economic crises do, as we know very well, <laughs> even in the West, and when we think about contemporary economic crises that we're living under still, they often create a sense of disillusionment and a sense of distrust um, with power. And so I think this happened also in the case of Thailand. There was a sense of 
we have been sacrificed, that a lot of these people who have gone through this economic development experience at the end of the 90s, at the beginning of the 2000s. And in that environment, in that landscape of dissatisfaction, Taksin, who was prime minister of Thailand for five years, um, emerged as a kind of champion of, weirdly, both the really upper class and the really low class. As a, as a kind of man who would bring back, um, bring back um, uh, a certain economic situation, but also bring back a state that would listen to his citizen. And that was really central to to how people like Nock came to to trust and believe uh, in this in this political change. Now, in two thousand six, uh, a military coup removed Taksin, and so when that happened. These people felt like the one prime minister we had um, that listened to us has been removed by the Thai elite. So it created a a kind of break into into Thai society that is still very much ongoing. I mean, if you open uh, a newspaper or if you read about contemporary Thailand, you, you read about ongoing protests. And what the story we told was the story of the previous wave of this protest, a wave that took place between 2006, as we're saying, and 2010, that was once again cracked down by the military, and that was followed by a military coup that happened in 2014. Our book ends before 2014, ends in pretty much 2012, 2013. And one of the reasons why we made the choice of the ending point was to to try to recover an history that the 2014 coup and the following military government were really trying to erase from collective memory. And so part of what the book is about is not just to inform people who don't know about Thailand to pick up a graphic novel and learn about the history of Thailand to a story of of Nok, but it's also to recover um, a memory of this political awakening, which is under attack right now. And that's kind of where I think we 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 ended with the with the story we tell. So I'd like to end with a couple questions about the book's format. Which I said is a it's a graphic novel based off of you know a decade of eth- ethnographic research. It's a story that combines um, elements from people that you've interviewed. Um, my first question on this point is: Do you think you? What do you gain from presenting this narrative or this composite of different narratives in a graphic format that you might otherwise lose if you stuck just to prose, just to writing? Um, and this is a question for, 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 for both of you. What do you think you gain from, from doing this graphic treatment of the story? All right. Um, well, <laughs> I think again I'll start on this because I think the expert is Sarah, so I'll just say my like two cents and then and then we'll pass it on to her. Um, uh, for me personally, I'm like I'm not a visual person. Uh, I'm not a visual person, both in the way I I work and uh, what I normally write, and also I'm not a visual person. Like I can't, you know, I can't draw in any way. I'm very bad at it. Uh, and so part of part of the reason for me and what I gained was the fact that a lot of my writing normally is about description. I spend a lot of time in my writing trying to use words to describe reality. 
And what was incredible to me to see Sarah work and to, to get to learn about her work and her way of engaging with it is that one object, one drawing, one image can do the work that a thousand words that I use normally could not. So I think in the book, what for me the graphic form brought in was an ability to condense space and time and to narrate um, the emotional level of these stories. I give you a specific example. Like I don't, I spend a lot of time in uh, in the streets of Bangkok, spending time with people who work on the street, which is humid and it's hot. And a lot of my writing work, it's tried to get you for one second to experience what it means to be at 2 p.m. where the air is still sitting on a road like that, knowing that the only whiff of cold air is going to come from a door that opens behind you to a shopping mall that you can't go inside. That to me, it's something that I spend a lot of time trying to tell. And I spend a lot of time trying to describe because I think it tells you something about a city like that. It tells you something about inequality. It tells you something about what it is to live in a space like that. Now, Sarah and images can do that in a second. <laughs> can give you that sense through color and movement and actual images that to me took me like, I don't know, 10 years to try to even get close to it in a lot of different writing and a lot of different systems. So I think for me, this was the real added value to it. And I don't know if, I mean, Sarah probably has a lot more to say. Yeah, no, I mean, this graphic novel is the result of a really uncommon working method. Uh, I mean, usually working on comics entail a division of labor uh, based on specific professional figure. But, but for instance, screenwriter who translates the story into a screenplay or an artist that makes the storyboard. But here, in this case, we, we totally cut out uh, all the intermediate figures. Um, I mean, probably the first year we, we was the most important and of our collaboration because Claudio, Chiara and I became aware, aware almost immediately of the need to set in a common, a common method, a common cross languages between uh, our areas of expertise. Um, through the confrontation, um, the dialogue became both pragmatic and theoretical because while I was sharing with uh, Claudio the basic comic rules uh, for setting the scenes or uh, writing the dialogues, uh, Claudio introduced me to the purpose of his research. Uh, he explained me a lot about colonialism and cultural appropriation and I needed to confront uh, uh, a lot of personal bias uh, uh, because I, I as an artist, I, I I was used to reconsider the art, but as a sorry, as a person, mm-hmm. I I needed to confront some. Uh, I mean, it's not so um, common to talk about uh, um, uh, some topics uh, when um, you are working about something. <sighs> it was. It was rough. It was uh, really difficult for me. So um, 
finally, when we were working on a page, uh, there were specific meanings that I was looking for in order to identify the specific target Claudio was aiming for. So Claudio Chiara, I had to learn how uh, to decipher my work in progress sketches about uh, abstract ideas. Well, we, we set a specific method um, and and uh, it was the turning point that let us organize the creative process as a way of creating a sort of collective tentacular eldership. So, I mean, this experience um, totally helped me to overcome some uh, artistic uh, um, point of view. And I think I'm, I'm better as an artist now. You mentioned adaptation, and that's actually a good segue into my last question, I think, which is, um, I mean, whenever you're adapting something to a different format, you always have to make choices about uh, what to include, what not to include, how to maybe um, interpret some of the details into a form that works best for the format. Um, In this case, though, The King of Bangkok is a work-based academic research um, and so how do you balance uh, telling a story that's visually compelling, that works in the graphic novel format, with the need to ensure that it accurately reflects the the different people that the story of Nock is based on? How did you how did you think about that balance in terms of making the choices you had to make in adapting the story to the graphic novel format? I, you wanna go? No, no, please, please go. I, I, I think the main move, the first move was what Sarah was referring to, which is establishing a method. And here is where like the discursive and the graphic really pushed in different direction, but they were productive in conversation with one another. What it means is that I'm, I'm, I'm an academic, like I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a nerd and I'm l- obsessed with literality. Like I try to be as literal in my analysis and as, um, um, and as faithful um, to a certain type of realism as I can. So my push here was to say, okay, let's build an archive in which we have my interviews and we have images from every year from 1983 to the present. And if we are drawing a scene in 1984, every object in that scene, the shoes, the t-shirt, what they wear, the songs they're listening to has to be historically accurate, right? So that was a way to try to keep to their realism that academic and research is it's ultimately about. Sarah's push on the other side was, as she was saying, in order to get to your aim, in order to go to what I saw as an aim, you might actually need to move away from realism into a more lyrical dimension in order to, to, to actually pass the, uh, the emotional and effective experience you want to talk about. So, the first move, I think, was a method, individuating a method in which we balance the two things and the adaptation was kept through having um, a lyrical approach and a, a graphic approach and a, and a color-based approach to the graphic while maintaining that every single word that is in there comes from interview, that every single uh, postcard or building or shoe or 
uh, radio set that you see in the in the movie in the in the graphic novel it's historically accurate. The second aspect was for me to really reflect for a moment of what is academic writing about. What is the objective of the academic writing, especially in a field like anthropology? And to me, the objective of the uh, academic writing is to try to get to expand uh, a view of what is to be alive in in the world that we live in. And often novels do a better job at that, the the traditional ethnographic writing or traditional academic writing. So part of the of the of the attempt here is to try to say something as we discussed until now about the history of Thailand, about urban development, about migration, but do it in a format that you could actually relate to the core of the of the of the story and the concept I wanted to tell without necessarily be bogged down in all the details that academic writing often gets stuck in. So this is where I think what Sarah was saying about the comic is central. Like comic works by reduction, by extracting a reduced version of of reality in order to get to um, a distillation almost of the idea that reality have. You know, like often uh, comic character are less defined the you know the 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 picture and. It's precisely the fact that they're less defined that makes it that many more people can actually identify with them. And so that's partly what we wanted to do. And I think that was the discussion to try to to use the tools that Sarah had in order to to extract something from academic research and writing and give it back in a form that it's uh, more alluring and attractive. Yeah, I was, I was definitely uh, think about our um, our first big fight about uh, one single splash page, uh, which we needed to represent the city in the eighties and our main characters, uh, a teenager at the point um, growing in with the city. The city was dynamic, was uh, in the full boom economic boom, and uh, we needed to represent all of this but we had only two pages and uh, we fight for the first time visual content uh, versus linguistic content um, Claudio wanted to have description and I needed to um, throw away all uh, the structure so uh, finally we decide for a double spread page uh, with uh, the city uh, and uh, um, all the buildings and the, name, the neighborhood, the, the slam was uh, uh, reconstructed and drawing from starting from reality. But in the middle of the city, there are these giant kids, the growing kids in the city. So uh, the, this was my first. Um, this was our first. Our first uh, new method. The, the, this this place page is really significant for us because uh, uh, we set the method with these pages. So that's it. The, the, this is the start of uh, our uh, really intense collaboration. <laughs> so I think with that, thank you for listening to our interview with Claudio Sopranzetti and Sara Fabri, the author and illustrator, respectively, of The King of Bangkok. I actually have some final questions for the both of you, which is, uh, which are, 
where can people find your work and what's next for you? Uh, what's next? Um, but when people can find our work in um, on Amazon in Italian, Italian, Thai, and uh, English. Okay, I'm really proud of that. Um, or I, I think maybe on the, the site of or uh, our publisher, University of Toronto Press, Toronto Press. Yes. And what's what's next, Claudio? What's next? <laughs> Uh, on my side, I really, I mean, I teach in university, so that's part of like, that's my, my Clark Kent day, daily job. <laughs> and and the, the Superman side of it, I'm still unsure. Um, I think, I mean, unfortunately due to COVID, I haven't been able to be back in Thailand in a while. Um, so that's, that's kind of, I think the next is try to put my feet back into the country and then uh, see where to go from there. Sarah, what next do you know? Yeah, I'm working. Um, I'm I'm working about. Okay, it's a solo story. I'm a solo author, so I'm just I'm working in these days about with another project. So, Thailand for me is uh, a little bit in standby in this moment. <laughs> so. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to hvbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. Um, the ARB podcast is on all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to support us, continue to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Claudio, Sara, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank, thank you, you very you much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Nicolas.